This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us. We start this Friday as we do many Fridays with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics, who joins me from his Fort Smith office. Michael, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Um, we'll, we'll not talk about the heat. It has been uh, really sure. as hot as it needs to probably ever be. Oh, oh, it's more than it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Uh, what is also heating up is uh, building activity in Fort Smith. It was kind of slow in the last report for May, but it has picked up. Yeah, although, good grief, that is one occupation I would not want to be in right now. I just can't imagine being on top of a roof in this kind of weather. But, um, yeah, after a slow May... Uh, building activity the uh, permits for Fort Smith, Greenwood, and Van Buren had uh, 22.5 million in permit values in June. That's up uh, 28% from May, and it's up 90% from June of 2021. So good, healthy numbers in June. Um, year to date for those three cities for the first six months of the year, uh, building permit totals uh, 199 million, just just under 200 million. And that's up 28% from last year. And remember, last year uh, set a record uh, with $343.2 million at the end of the year. So um, for people like me who were not thinking it could keep up with that pace of 2021, it has done that and then some. Um, for the first six months of the year, permits – uh, are up uh, 3.5% in Fort Smith. They're up to 100, uh, just short of $140 million. Van Buren permits for the first six months are a little over $52 million. Uh, that's up almost 200%. Uh, and in Greenwood, their permits are almost $7 million, up 34%. So broad gains in all three cities. Um, and a lot of that is um, – uh, commercial uh, commercial activity, uh, especially in Fort Smith, pushing those um, pushing those values higher. And any idea of how supply chain challenges are affecting building now? I mean, we've talked about this over the course of the last year or so. Yeah, what I'm hearing from folks is that they're just having to plan ahead. They're having to order uh, ahead of time, have to order, you know, earlier than they normally would, and they're just having to balance some of their work, you know, uh, you know, those, and I'm, this is just an example. So they may work one project and then wait for the, say the doors and the windows to, uh, to arrive for the other project. And some projects are just delayed. I think you remember when we talked to the folks at Mercy Fort Smith, you know, when they announced this or when they began this 160 plus million dollar expansion of the hospital here, I think they added, you know, anywhere from six to nine months on to their expected construction schedule just because they weren't sure about getting products, getting supplies in. So it's obviously not slowing the projects down, uh, but I, I think it it's probably it's adding time to how long it takes to complete them. And I know that so many people who are in the River Valley and Fort Smith building community are were saddened this week from um, an unfortunate passing. Yeah, it's just definitely unfortunate passing, uh, unexpected. Stephanie Stipens, she's been the executive director of the Greater Fort Smith Association of Home Builders, uh, pretty prominent trade trade group here, very active trade group in Fort Smith. Uh, known Stephanie for a long time, just. Um, 
gosh, one of those folks, just hardworking folks, knew how to get things done. Um, uh, she was instrumental in working. She, she. I wish I. I I'm not going to be able to explain it as as adequate as I can, but she pulled together school districts, the Arkansas Department of Workforce Education, the Arkansas Department of, La of Labor to create this residential apprentice construction program. Um, and just, I remember when she was working on it, thinking, good luck with that, Stephanie. That's a lot of cats to try to herd. But she pulled it together. Um, also under her leadership that the Home Builders Association of Fort Smith saw 37% growth in its membership. And, but she died um, Tuesday morning, July 5th. She was just 47. Uh, it was complications from a recent surgery, um, has four children, but just a tough, tough blow uh, for that family and for that uh, community. And um, I'm, that's a robust community. They'll, they'll pick up and move on. But she was um, not only, I, I want to stress, uh, not only was she a good leader uh, of that program, but she was a good leader in the region. And those are so far and few between that you just hate to lose them. And I, I hope somebody can step up and try to continue what she did. But um, just a heartfelt loss, that's for sure. And there's another story at Talk Business, not Ned, I want to ask you about. And that's about, um, gosh, a business that's been operating in Fort Smith for uh you know, since 1968, I'm sure so many people listening to us have gone to this nursery. Oh, and I have. And in full disclosure, my oldest daughter worked for them, uh, Neumeyer's uh, Nursery and Greenhouses. Uh, they, they're going to close July 31st. Uh, Bill and Jody Neumeyer have run that business for 54 years. Of course, Bill is 83, Jody 79. Um, they're going to shut it down. Um, but um, you know, just uh, a definitely an iconic business in Fort Smith, and um, they, I hate that they're closing it down, but I understand. A lot of people understand and are are thankful that they provided that service, provided that business as long as they have. Um, they've got some kids who spun off some similar businesses, so it's not like it's completely going away, but um, – Again, just one of those iconic businesses in Fort Smith. I was glad we could uh, pull the story together, and it's also a, just a story of uh, of a, a husband and wife who just—it's just a good, hard work ethic. Jump in and make it happen. Follow your passion, kind of story. And I was glad we were able to tell it. And I hope to have a good retirement. I know when my oldest daughter worked for Bill, she would be frustrated but in a good way because she'd be you know pulling large flats of pansies around or a wheelbarrow around and bill who you know was then i think 82 or 81 then would say now you know young lady you don't need to be doing it. and he would just take over those and she'd be like wait a minute you're 80 you know but <laughs> that's what gave him life and gave him purpose it's what he enjoyed um so anyway i just kudos to them it's hard to have a successful business in this world, much less bring that kind of success for 54 years. And um hate to see, like I said, we hate to see him go, but it's a great story and I hope people can, can check it out. 
Well, and I love the way that Tina Dale uh, from Talk Business ended it because she asked, you know, here's someone who's been in business for more than five decades with his, he and his wife, their, their own business, and said, you know, what advice would you have for people starting out? And he just said, you know, do you love what you're doing? And that echoes conversations yeah. that we have in this building. Yeah, yeah, because if you don't, um, I, I got some advice early on in my life, you know, do what do what you love, and the money will follow. Well, I've done what I love. I'm not sure all the money that has followed that I'd like, maybe, but yeah, if you can follow those passions, it's great. And, and Bill and Jody Newmar are just a great, great example of, of doing that and finding success as they do that. Well, you can find out what other people around our region are passionate about when you go to talkbusiness.net. These stories and many others detailed there. Stay cool, Michael, and we will talk again next week. Yeah, I'll try to stay cool, and I'll, I'll uh, continue to send thoughts and prayers to my air conditioner. On boat after boat, Doreen Cunningham and her young son followed the long migration path of gray whales. Their endurance, how they keep going through difficulty, that helped me when I was finding life hard. She talks about their journey in her new book, Soundings. Also, Boris Johnson, done as prime minister, but what's next for Britain? Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition, tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 on KUAF 91.3 or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Walmart Amp welcomes James Taylor Friday, July 15th at 8 p.m. with 24 top 10 hit songs including You've Got a Friend, Fire and Rain, Shower the People, and more Taylor's music ushered in the era of the singer-songwriter in the 1970s. Tickets on sale now at amptickets.org or 443-5600. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities including apartments, cottages, and village home living options. Information at ButterfieldTrailVillage.org. This is Ozarks at Large. In the late 20th century, a broadcast journalist turned entrepreneurial documentary filmmaker named Jack Hill made dozens of films about Arkansas, covering topics like the 1920s oil boom in South Arkansas, European immigration to the state along the Arkansas River, and an Army flying school in Walnut Ridge. Jack was expansive and dedicated to reporting on and for Arkansas. I recently spoke with Dale Carpenter and Bob Cochran, the co-authors of the recent book from the University of Arkansas Press titled Reporting for Arkansas. I'm not a native Arkansan and wasn't familiar with Jack's work, so I started by asking Bob why it's important to write a biography of Jack's life. I have a quick answer to that story. I'd never heard of Jack Hill either. When you first said that you'd never heard of Jack Hill because you came from outside Arkansas, it's equally true that even if you had come from inside Arkansas and you didn't weren't of a certain age and hadn't come from northeast Arkansas, there'd be a good chance that you had, wouldn't have heard of him either. The reason it's important, I think, to talk about him is that, one, he was a pioneering documentary filmmaker in the state. He established a, a company, you know, a, a production company, and produced a lot of films, for which Dale was uh, often his lead cameraman, sometimes his only cameraman, I think. So the reason that when I discovered him, I brought a book just to show you that here's how I discovered him. Mm. My wife and I were doing the catalog for an old statehouse exhibit on uh, Arkansas film, 
on sort of Arkansas's footprint in Hollywood. You wouldn't have thought they had much, but they, they, they had a pretty nice footprint in Hollywood. And I told them we would write that catalog. I had a certain amount of leverage with them because they needed the catalog written if we could have a chapter on documentary film. And then here's where the circle starts. Uh, my wife and I talked to – Suzanne and I talked to, uh, to Dale and uh, to Larry Foley and Jack Hill's name came up. So that was a light bulb for me. And then Dale loaned me uh, his collection of VHS tapes of Jack's films. And I had no idea how many there were. There were it had surprised me how many there were. And that, that sort of took over about two years of my – a year and a half of my life because I watched all of them. And uh, the more I watched, the more it became clear that this guy deserved a more extensive treatment than the one paragraph he got in that book. Dale, why is it important for you to remember Jack Hill in this way? Well, uh, I'm like you guys. I really had grown up in Arkansas, but I had not heard of Jack either. And I was working in television. I was a producer at AETN, photographer and editor there, and and uh, I freelanced on the side. And so, but I'd never really Jack had never really been somebody that was part of my world here in Arkansas media, uh, but I, I met him, uh, and he was looking for a freelance photographer. And uh, that little meeting there kind of took me on a journey that I'm so grateful that I had because Jack, I could tell from the first time I talked to him, he had a vision. He had an idea that he was really passionate about. And uh, his idea was that Arkansas, people who live here really don't know their own state. They don't appreciate what we have. They don't really understand the problems that we're dealing with, maybe as well as we should. And he wanted to do this not – he would make fun of me sometimes because I worked at public television and we had no commercials and we just did our films and they got on air as long as they had a grant or something like that. But he wanted to do it on commercial television. He wanted – this to, to be seen, he wanted his films to be seen by people who maybe don't always watch public television. Six Pack Joe is that's how he what he Joe that's what he said. Yeah. I, I didn't. I, that wasn't my term. But yeah. that was Jack. And you know, I understood what he meant because sometimes I did feel like the films that we I, I worked on at AETM maybe did have a limited audience. And he wanted his to come on right after the local news or right before the local news on commercial stations. And he was going to sell commercials. And he told me all of this in this first meeting. And I just thought, yeah, great. Sounds interesting. How much are you going to pay? Because <laughs> you know? I, was, I was a freelancer and I needed, I needed some work. So uh, that's how I met Jack. And, and the reason I think it's important is that, it's like Bob said, he was a pioneer. I mean, nobody in their right mind would think that they could get all of these films on commercial television sell advertising time on subjects that, you know, they're not the most sexy subjects. They're things that, yeah, people in Arkansas really needed to know about these things. It, it's, it made us more aware of, of our history and, and, and made us look at things that we, were, we should be proud of. But he also pointed out a lot of problems, too. As you lay out in the biography, it sticks out to me that despite his long career as a documentary filmmaker, he himself didn't really seem to be the one behind the camera all that much. In fact, it was you, Dale, who worked as his cameraman for the majority of his work. What was it like to be in that role, and how did his vision shape the way that you shot? Well, 
it was, um, looking back on it, it was kind of a privilege, really. Uh, at the time, I mean, half the time I was angry at him while we were out working, you know, because he would have ideas and he would be so insistent on what he wanted. And I would have an idea that I thought this would make it easier and it would be a little better because I, I understand photography. But I learned very quickly that Jack's ideas were going to be the ones that we did. And so the way I kind of was able to cope with that was I looked at it as an exercise in in just – how, how can I work with this guy and give him what he needs to do his story? Because he obviously has an idea that he wants to get, you know, done. And so we would shoot these films. Jack was on a very tight budget on almost all his films. But later he got a little bit better because he got some pretty good grants and some sponsors and things from people. But early on, it was tight. And so he would rent the camera for the whole day. And he knew that he could keep that camera from early in the morning. He could, we could even pick it up the night before, shoot something that, that evening, come back the next morning, bright sunrise, work the whole day, and take it back, you know, way late into the night. So he got – I was on a daily rate. <laughs> so no matter how long I worked, that's right. how much I was going to get. Two hours, 23 hours, it's and the same. It was, they were marathons. But I was young, and, and it was good for me. Because I, I, it was kind of like, how do you work really fast and still maintain quality? You know, because Jack wanted these to be good. He wanted them to look good and to sound good. And so it was a real, it was, to me, it was kind of a challenge in that way to survive that kind of schedule. But we would shoot a 30-minute documentary usually in three days. We'd, we'd get everything shot. And then he would disappear and he would write the script and edit. he would edit himself. And I think the other thing that always kept me going was that I began to realize that these subjects he was doing were really worth doing. Another thing that stuck out to me in the writing about him, when he lost his job at KAIT in Jonesboro, it became a one-man operation for 23 years, doing everything from writing grants to scripts, hiring camera operators, and selling sponsorships. What sort of impact does this have on his reporting, having to be a one-man band who is someone who is not just thinking about the project, but thinking, how am I going to fund this? How am I going to get the help that I need? How am I going to write this? And sometimes, how am I going to write this that doesn't upset the sponsors or doesn't upset the people who I'm asking for money from? I think the best way to answer that is that in two places, despite that sort of mid-career trauma that he endured by being dismissed at, at KAIT when in the station changed hands, he got lucky twice. And one we can deal with very briefly. He got lucky when he got hired at KAIT because he did the same thing. It's in the book because I interviewed the guy who was his boss there. And the guy picked him up at the Memphis airport. You remember reading this. And he asked him one question. Jack talked all the way back to Jonesboro. So that guy could have said this guy's a nut job and, and dismissed him, you know, but he didn't. He had enough vision for his program that if he put a, you know, a jazzy weatherman and somebody else with Jack, that Jack could be the Walter Cronkite of Northeast Arkansas. That, so that's the first one. And we can put that to the side. But then he got lucky again. He got lucky with the Walton Foundation. He got lucky with Rob Walton. The, and I, I try to give credit to, to Mr. Walton in that book. I mean, here's a very busy guy. And here comes this motormouth guy in his door. And somehow he, like with the station manager, said this guy, you know, he, he had that kind of, you know, broadband wisdom. He said, this guy will do a good job. 
And so if you look at the credits throughout the book, the Walton Family Foundation, it was called the Walton Family Foundation then, I, I think. I've forgotten some of the details. But they're his anchor sponsors. And, you know, you know the story there. Once he's got that and he goes to Swepco or he goes to somewhere else and he says, you know, Rob Walton just gave me $5,000, that, that speaks volumes. Right. So I think he got lucky twice. He also, uh, he was a good salesman in his own way. I mean, he could go into uh, a part of the state and talk to the Chamber of Commerce and explain to them he's going to make this film about the Battle of Helena. And this is going to be a really interesting film that people in the area don't really even understand the Battle of Helena. And here's your opportunity to help me produce this film. And we'll even produce your commercial. And so I remember sometimes we would shoot commercials. We'd be shooting a documentary. And then we'd have to go by the Annabellum Mansion and shoot this woman from Helena walking down the, the staircase going, you know, come to Helena. <laughs> you know? And so you just never knew what Jack was going to do to try to raise money for these films that he wanted to do. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I'm sure that that commercial itself played in the midst oh, of the film, right? It was part of the film, yeah. And that got him a little bit more money to do the production. And it would sometimes make me mad because I'm like, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm not going to do a commercial, you know. But I just learned that this he's got to do this yeah. in order to make it work. One of the things, I, I learned something just today. I mean, this I was so new to this, it's hard to communicate to you. But the anecdote, beautiful anecdote that Dale told today about shooting a commercial in the same afternoon that they're shooting the film, I didn't know that till right now. Right now is when I learned that story. And if I had known that story a year and a half ago, it would have been in the book because it's, so, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of perfectly revealing anecdote yeah. about Jack. And one last thing, and I'd like Dale to pick this up. He was a great interviewer. I mean, he as a you know, if there's a cultural anthropology folklore side to to traditional culture side to to what I was trained to do, there are really good interviewers, and then there are interviewers who are not so good. And Jack had an unbelievable eye when he was on when he was in a certain project to say, "That's my central interview. That's my head interview." And you know, I I used to kind of laugh with my I'd tell my wife about Jack I'd come home and tell them all about the trip you know and I was going you know he can interview he's a really good interview I don't see how he is though because he can't stop talking when, <laughs> when I'm with him he's talking constantly but when he gets into an interview I mean he's he's focused and he knows the direction that the interview needs to go and and he talks to real people that's the other thing I thought he always had people in those films that were not typical maybe to be in a, in, in, a, in a film like, yeah. you know, somebody that yeah. really could speak from the heart about it. And I think that's one of the things that this really stuck out to me in his films is, you know, you have your experts, you have your political folks, but the stories that always resonate the most and stick, you, stick with you the most are the average Arkansans, right? And that's, I think that really kind of hits home at the kind of reporting that he aspired to do and did a successful job at it. I mean, that's the thing that sticks with us, right? Absolutely. And that's something he learned on the job. Because if you go to some of his earliest films, uh, one of the earlier ones where he does this is the film about the oil boom in uh, South Arkansas, Smack Over in El Dorado. If you look at that film, too much of that film really is talking heads who are sitting behind big desks. He's got some great people who are actually working on rigs and things like that. But too much of it is just sort of Chamber of Commerce blather. 
And then if you look at the later films, that's been pushed to the back. And the very people you just described have been moved to the foreground. This first clip I want to play is from a story produced in 1999 called The Newest Arkansans. It's a film that focuses on the influx of Hispanic immigrants who have moved to northwest Arkansas. So let's listen to that. But never has there been anything as dramatic as the flood of Hispanics who have come in recent years to northwest Arkansas. Basically what has happened is, is that the world has been brought to northwest Arkansas. And so on a Sunday morning, a handful of people from somewhere else gather in Springdale for church. But this isn't your typical church, it's a storefront. I think we have the best location in northwest Arkansas. Literally, the pastor can sit out in the front and make 30 visits a day and never leave the church. And access to Hispanics is important to Reverend Sarver in his role as Minister of Missions. And I believe God has given us the doorway of opportunity to reach the Hispanic community of Northwest Arkansas. And we just want to walk through it. It will grow. Our whole goal here is to have a self-sustaining indigenous Hispanic church. Bob, you point out in the book that the tone of Hill's portrayal is resolutely upbeat when it comes to this story. Why does that stick out to you? Well, in some films, I really want to hand this over mostly to Dale because he's a professional at listening and watching, and I'm not. Um, I was stunned even in that clip at how audible the background all of a sudden was to me that I had noticed before. But I would say he was resolutely upbeat in a way that required courage, that if you put yourself back in that time, and I was already working at the University of Arkansas at the time that he made that film, there was a lot of stuff in the newspapers sort of uh, say, we got to stop this onslaught. You know, we have to preserve our traditional way of life, you know. And, this. and so, in other words, he wasn't occupying majority ground necessarily in, when he made that film. And the, the most striking one of that, we didn't put it in our clip, but in our playlist. But he made a film about AIDS in Arkansas at a time when that he was doing something that not many people were doing. And so Jack plugged into this, you know, send us our your huddled masses. I mean, he, he, he probably had the Statue of Liberty planted in his forehead somewhere. And when he would see an issue like immigration, you know, he plugged right in. He was all for it. And that comes through in the films. Yeah, Jack traveled when he was in the, in the military. He made a point of, I mean, he went everywhere when he was stationed in Europe. And in, in the book, Bob does a great job of using some letters and some things that he wrote to describe the trips he went on. And, and he, was, he was kind of conscious of building his, his background, you know, and his understanding of the way the world works. You know, I think he was doing it. It was a purpose to that. It wasn't just like fun trips. And so, you know, my impression of Jack and as I got to know him over the years was, I mean, as sometimes as self-obsessed as he could seem sometimes, he was very compassionate. We're nearly a quarter century past this film's air date. I mean, we're living in a world now here in northwest Arkansas where there is certainly indigenous Hispanic folks who are here who were born in Springdale and they are second generation Americans, right? Um, what has changed or what has remained true from this reporting, especially when we think about um, the impact that the Hispanic and Latino community in Springdale and Rogers has had on Northwest Arkansas? 
I can tell you one thing. Uh, when, when he as early on as he was on to that story, I remember he had went to Rogers High School. He grew up in Rogers, Arkansas, and he he used his his annual as as a visual to show the lily white senior class of Rogers High School that he was a graduate in. And uh, and then I remember we were shooting the, we need to cover video to show that there are some signs, just visual signs that the Hispanics are here. And we were driving around Springdale looking, and actually we were in Rogers, and we were, he said, we just got to find some signs, and we drove up to an ATM. I think they put some Spanish on the, on the ATM, <laughs> so we were going to shoot that. And we were really having trouble finding Spanish in Rogers at that point, but he was doing the story at a pretty early stage. They were there. It just hadn't become such a part of the community, you know. So, yeah, he was he was into it early on. Yeah. And now it's hard to drive a block through <laughs> yeah. Spring Trail or Rogers yeah. and not see yeah. uh, a sign in Spanish. That's right. This last clip that I want to play for you is from Arkansas's Hemingway. And there are plenty of Hemingway stories here at Hardy's. This is where a group of men meet twice a day once in the morning and again in the afternoon. It's fun to join them and to listen in for their recollections of Hemingway. Well, I'd never seen an old man wear short bushes. That's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. <laughs> it scared me. Well, I was uh, coming out of the post office and uh, as I was leaving the post office, I looked down West Main and here come this Bum, I thought. <laughs> I looked him over. I said, who is that fella? And he said, it's Ernest Hemingway. What is going through Jack's mind to kind of exude these sort of stories from these men? I mean, there's doesn't necessarily put them in a great light. The stories that they're telling, the way that they're describing their experiences of seeing Ernest Hemingway in their hometown is is not terribly flattering to them as as the character in the story. How does he get that kind of conversation out of them? Well, I, go ahead. Dave. Well, I just I just remember it was always funny to me because in like a scene like that, Jack would be wearing a suit and tie. He's he's like <laughs> he just looks so out of place, but he everybody I just think they just understood that you know this is a news guy you know and they just kind of the what he was talking to him about though really meant something to him and they had they had something to say, so it was always really funny though to me to to look at Jack in those settings because sometimes he just looks so out of place because he never came off the the look you know of the the anchor the news guy. You know, yeah. that was that was him. He'll be standing out in the middle of Pea Ridge Battlefield in the heat of summer, and he's going to be wearing a suit and tie when he does his stand-up. Yeah, try to picture him at the Rototiller competition. <laughs> you know, he's, so he, out of place, he's out of place. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I would add to that, with the, specifically with the Hemingway scene, is that the visuals convey a certain sheepishness on the part of the speakers. They know they were rascally little boys when they were rocking, as they put it. They're throwing dirt clods and stones at, at a Sir Ernest Hemingway. So it's not flattering to him, and they know it. There's a kind of, so if you look at the visuals, there's a kind of hangdog look. You know, we, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were little boys, you know, but it, I think it's a great moment. As we wrap up here, what is something that Jack did that you hope inspires future journalists or future documentarians? Um, what's something from his work that really you hope resonates with the next generation of filmmakers? 
I just think it's his, you know, belief in himself and the fact that, you know, he he was in, in a very low situation career-wise, and he kind of just dug his way out and found a way to keep doing it and and he became even more successful as he as he did that and became the documentary filmmaker that he became but i just think you know young people especially in journalism the whole entrepreneurship of journalism is something that is scary i think to a lot of young journalists and i think that jack's an example of somebody who he just found his niche he just found this is something that people he believed needed to understand and hear and, and, and see, and uh, he believed in it. And, and that belief kind of made it possible for somebody like Rob Walton to go, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. So everybody comes, that's perfect. I almost just leave it at that. But And I, so what I would second Dale by saying that Jack's story proves that, you know, the, you get told that opportunity knocks. Well, sometimes opportunity knocks hard, and that's the image that we used in the book, that he got he got flattened up there at KAIT when he, you know, was dismissed, and yet he rose. It took him four or five years, but he found his footing and and ended strong. Bob Cochran is the director of the Center for Arkansas and Regional Studies. Dale Carpenter is a former professor of broadcast journalism at the University of Arkansas. Together, they wrote reporting for Arkansas, and they joined me in Studio 120 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting the classic rock band Three Dog Night to the auditorium in Eureka Springs this Thursday, July 14th. Hits include Mama Told Me Not to Come, Joy to the World, an old-fashioned love song, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets.thundertix.com. Walton Arts Center presents Uncorked Wine Tasting, part of the 20th Annual Art of Wine Festival on Friday, July 22nd at 7 p.m. This lively event features hundreds of wines, champagne, beer, spirits, small bites, and desserts from local restaurants. Tickets are available at waltonartcenter.org or 443-5600. Art Ventures Gallery in Fayetteville held an opening reception for their new exhibition, Threads of Identity last night. The collection features works from 13 multimedia artists exploring fashion, art, and cultural identity. Executive Director Lakeisha Edwards says the exhibit has something for everyone. When we were talking about the theme for this particular exhibition, what to even entitle it, we started talking about the different threads that make up what we consider the tapestry of life. So it's culture, it's fashion, it's um, the things that we wear, it's the things that we like to be around, it's the culture of um, what has been passed down through generations. So as you walk through the gallery, you see things that are from different cultures. You see artists that are expressing themselves in different ways. Someone may look at something and say, how does that fit into fashion? Or how does that fit into the threads of identity? But if you look at the artist statements, then you'll you'll understand a little bit more of how that artist creates and then why it was so important for them to show that part of the fabric of life. Threads of Identity is on display now through August 28th at Art Ventures Gallery, 20 South Hill Avenue in Fayetteville. This is Ozarks at Large. Travis Castor has been in our studio several times over the years. Previously, one half of the husband and wife duo, the Time Burners. We've also talked with him about their more recent project, Beck and Tall, and now he has released an album of solo music he's written and recorded over the past 30 years. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis recently reached Travis by phone and talked about the new release, which is titled Out with the Old. 
it's kind of made a foundation for what I'm going to do some future stuff solo. We still do some group stuff with the wife, but uh, um, I wanted to do something that would kind of give me a foundation for some future projects. I thought, boy, I've done a lot of stuff and got serious about it since about 1998. So uh, I went back to recordings and even some cassettes and kind of rescued some songs and started with 30 songs that I thought were the best I've done of things and different groups and things and uh, got it down to 18 and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this out as kind of a collection of best of what I've done and uh, kind of who I am. And that's how it kind of went. Now, these are all songs that you've written, like you said, since the late 90s. Uh, but did you record any of them new or are they all what you did at the time? They're all from, yeah, what I did at the time from like different bands and stuff, uh, different releases, some unreleased, things like that that have been out there and haven't been out there. But uh, they're, they're all stuff that's been recorded in the past. I found my baby do a diamond ring. And she told me I need two little things. I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy. Work for my baby every day. I found my baby new a Cadillac. She said it ain't pink. You better take it back. I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy, work for my baby every day. I bought my baby a brand new coat. She said it ain't for boy, what's the joke? I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy. I'm a working daddy, work for my baby every day. I gave my baby all my loving, and she told me it ain't never enough. I'm a working daddy. I'm sure you've had some downtime, you know, over the years with some of these songs, you know, before, but why decide to put it out now? It's a good time to kind of reflect on uh, who you are as a person, who you are as a musician, things like that. You know, I've, I've had other musicians through the years, uh, I've been in bands with and stuff and help, and I contacted them all to say hi for this project and say, hey, is it cool if you uh, play drums on this song and put something out? And, of course, most of these guys were all thrilled about it and happy to do it. And it's one of those things where it's kind of just a piece of history, and I think it just felt like it was the right time to do that. Um, with everything that goes on in the world, it just it's a good time to just give your respects and say thank you and move on. <laughs> So, how would you say that this music is different from what you've been doing uh, more recently? We've been in there as the time burners, Becky and I, and we kind of mm-hmm. transitioned from uh, a lot of rockabilly stuff to some old, uh, you know, cowboy country stuff and things like that. And uh, obviously, this is different because it's a it's a blues rock, I would say, kind of based and a little bit of surf in there and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, at heart, that's that's what I started with. That's who I am. That's what I've always kind of done too. So I kind of try to melt all that together, and this is just a, something different and fun for me. And so Becky agreed this would be a good project for me to, to work on, too, with what I what I have future plans of doing. Speaking of surf music, I know there are a couple of instrumentals on this release. Uh, is that something you're looking to do more of as you're kind of doing more of the solo thing moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I've always had a real love for that. I would say around here it's kind of Ozark Mountain surf music, I'd call it. So <laughs> through the hills, I guess. You know, it's it's just something I've always I've always loved. One of 
I'll, my favorite song ever has always been Sleepwalk um, from Santo and Johnny in the 50s, and so that's always stuck with me, and things like that is just uh, some instrumental songs that feature some guitar, and doesn't have to be real extravagant, but it's just cool. So if this is a teaser to kind of the stuff that you're wanting to do moving forward, uh, what what do you have planned? Uh, what do you have on the horizon? I'm working on another album that's uh, going to be, I don't know when it's going to be, but it's going to be new stuff that's just different for what I've done. I mean, it's it's the same kind of jive of, I'd probably say blues, rock, surf type thing, but mm-hmm. it's just different than what I've ever put out there before. That's kind of why I, I wanted to build this in there and thought that this is a good good precursor to what's to come in the future and just projects that I want to do as a solo artist too. You know, it's funny. We've talked for several years now, about once a year, and every single time it seems like you're working on something new. How do you keep finding inspiration to write new music? I guess nowadays you just got to turn on the news. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> if, I did that, if I did that, I would, uh, I guess that's probably part of the blues reason right now. You know, it's <laughs> like, geez, it's, it's, you got to do something around here. You know, I try to keep things positive somewhat, you know, but yeah, I ain't going to lie. You know, the pandemic and stuff put me, put me in a bluesy mood and, and that's part of the reason too, I think. So it was just time to pull out the, the strat again and, and play some, some music like that and, and do some different things I I do. That was one of my first guitars that I had as a kid, and uh, so it's kind of just stuck with me. I know this is a an important year for me because this is the year I first picked up a guitar when I was 15 years old and bought my first one at a pawn shop, and so I'll be playing 30 years this year. I did that because I played drums first, and I said, boy, I don't want to play drums because I'm never going to get any chicks. That's too much to carry. So I, I said, I'm going to teach myself guitar. And, that, and obviously it worked because I met my wife in school. But I met her playing the drums, so go figure. I said, a good-looking woman loves you and hard to find. Yeah, a good-looking woman loves you and hard to find. But a good-looking woman can't keep me satisfied.
coming out with it soon what are your plans for releasing it i started putting some stuff out online some teasers and things like that um i i'm gonna share it with a lot of different radio things and some promo stuff and kind of see and get a feel of what people are going to do with it and what they what they think of it and uh, i'm kind of assessing the situation of, of music right now and what, what i'm going to do live um, right now, I'm not not out there doing it like I should be, yeah. but uh, I'm kind of at the point where I'm uh, iffy, iffy, uh, what I'm going to do and, and where we're going to go, things like that with music. So uh, I kind of want to see what people think and then go from there. Travis, congratulations on 30 years of playing guitar. Not not many people keep with something for 30 years. Trust me, I've, I've thought about putting it down a couple of times, but I always head back for it. So it's something that's kind of been a part of me and will still be. I got you. I got you. Well, Travis, thanks again so much for taking some time to talk with us today. You bet. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Travis Caster speaking recently with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. The album Out With The Old is available now on all streaming platforms, YouTube, and at Travis's website. That's Travis, K-O-E-S-T-E-R, dot com. Terrific Tuesday nights return this summer to the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks. The garden will be open with no admission fee from 5 to 8 p.m. each Tuesday, June through August. Picnics are welcome and family-friendly entertainment will be offered on select evenings. More information is available at bgozarks.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Romance Diamond, celebrating 20 years on Dixon Street with a store remodel. Beginning August 1st, customers can call or text for help with sales, appointments, appraisals, and repairs. 479-443-9289 or info at romancediamond.com. This is a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large, and like we do so many Fridays, we invite Courtney Lanning to join us via Zoom to talk about a new film that Courtney has seen and is willing to tell us whether it's worth our time. Courtney, welcome back. Kyle, thanks for having me. Let's see. This time it's a Netflix film called The Sea Beast, which is animated. And I'm going to tell you, here's the difference between our ages again. When I was a kid, if I heard the words made for television animation, you knew it was not going to look very good. It was going to be cheap and it was just not going to be something that was a treat for the eyes. In the days of streaming, that's a whole different sort of uh, meaning made for TV animation, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, as TV has evolved into streaming, I mean, what is made for TV anymore? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But uh, I will say The Sea Beast is spectacular. Uh, I think it's going to be nominated for Best Animated Feature category in the Oscars, where it will eventually lose to Disney or Pixar, just like every non-Disney or Pixar does every year at the Oscars. But this one will be nominated, at least, just like uh, Claus was, Netflix's animated hit from 2019. And this, um, this, 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 this like one, Claus, was made by Netflix for Netflix, right? Right. Netflix has an in-house animation studio that's just called 
Netflix animation. And I think they prove time and time again that they are capable of competing with the giants like Disney and DreamWorks. Uh, the animation in this movie, I'll just say it point blank, is to die for. We open on rolling waves on the sea and the water looks so realistic. And as the movie goes on, the textures on everything from gold to the stitching on clothing to the wood of the ships, it's all wildly impressive. Um, Netflix animation, they can compete with the House of Mouse any day in terms of quality. Well, I love the title, The Sea Beast. I hope that means for the inner seven-year-old in me that there is a sea beast, there's a monster. There are multiple sea beasts, yes. Kyle, for your inner seven-year-old to enjoy. You know, this movie is is kind of like, and this is going to sound like the, the strangest combination, it's a little like Pirates of the Caribbean meets Pacific Rim. You have these pirate-like monster hunters whose entire job is just to go out into the sea and kill these giant, giant beasts. Um, the action is very lively. The characters are lovable. The story is about a little girl named Maisie who sneaks aboard one of these ships to be with her, her heroes that are out hunting these monsters and she stows away because uh, she wants to be like them. Um, and along the way, maybe they figure out that the monsters aren't all bad. Hmm. Is it played straight? I mean, this isn't a comedy, right? I mean, there's some, okay. there's some pretty good comedic moments. You get some good slapstick in there. The, um, uh, the director of The Sea Beast also directed uh, Big Hero 6. Oh, I really like that. And in Moana, if I believe correctly, co-directed. Um, and, and too intense for very young children? How would you gauge that? No, not no. too intense at all. This is a family-friendly film, though I will say there is one scene that I rewound over and over because it was just so chilling and terrifying. There's, there's this awesome scene where the main characters are thrown underwater, and when they look down and they see the sea beast just staring up at them, staring up at them in the stillness of the water, and it's it's bone chilling as the creature just stares, locks eyes with them directly. You see how giant it is compared to these little people, and then it just slowly fades into the depths. It is terrifying. Okay, all right. It's on Netflix today. It is um, available today on Netflix, and really, the only change I would make to this film is just building out this world of monster hunters just a smidge more. Um, but other than that, no notes. Flawless. Okay. All right. I look forward to seeing this, and I will see it. I uh, want to update you that, you know, a movie a couple weeks ago you recommended highly, uh, Cha Cha Real Smooth. Finally caught up with that on Apple Plus. I believe that's who made that one. Yes. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Well, you know, if if we're, we're about halfway through the year, you know, at the end of the year, I'll pick my top ten movies of the year. Um, and right now, I'd say my top three are, at number one, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm -hmm. Number two, Cha-Cha Real Smooth. And number three, The Sea Beast. Okay. All right. Uh, speaking of my inner seven-year-old, what's the big movie coming to theaters this weekend? Oh, come on, Kyle. You know what it is. It's Thor 4. Thor Love and Thunder is going to rock the theaters this weekend. And uh, you and I are both looking forward to seeing it. All right, you can read Courtney Lanning's full review of The Sea Beast in today's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. We'll talk about The Deer King next week. Courtney Lanning, as always, thank you for your time. Kyle, thanks for having me. That's saxophonist Joel Fromm in the background, and I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. 
We'll hear more from Joel. He'll be at Crystal Bridges North Forest Concert Series this Saturday. And I'll also feature a special interview with guitarist Ryan Fort, as well as music from Bruce Barth and a host of other jazz classics and new recordings. Tune into Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and all of Pushmataha County. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today's contributors included... Timothy Dennis, Michael Tilley, and Courtney Lanning. Daniel Carruth, by the way, provided sound and information about last night's Art Ventures event. We'll have more about that uh, on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. Our community engagement manager at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Jasper will be engaging with the community tomorrow afternoon when he hosts a conversation with playwright Candace Jones about her play Flex, which is now on stage at Theater Squared. Their conversation, which will be open to the public, will be on stage at T2 tomorrow afternoon at 345. That's following the matinee performance of Flex at Theater Squared. Matthew, I wanted to talk about the World Games. I certainly know that you did. That are taking place, as of now, in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. The World Games are international competitions of sports that are not in the Olympics. Right. So you're talking fistball, you're talking corfball. Sumo wrestling. Sumo wrestling, fin swimming. But unfortunately, we don't have enough time to really talk about the World Games today. Yes. But we've got a couple of weeks. How long do they go? Uh, I think for a week and a half. Okay. Um, Beach handball. Just all the sports that I love to watch that nobody else knows about other than in the Netherlands. Right, exactly. We've got an abundance of content to keep us entertained next week. So stay tuned. From Studio 120, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for listening.